Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, as we come to the heart of the Olivet Discourse this morning. Called the Olivet Discourse because at this point, Jesus is teaching his disciples on the side of the Mount of Olives. It is the likely Wednesday evening on Thursday. He will be betrayed after the Passover meal. On Friday, he will be crucified. By now, he has been thoroughly rejected by the leaders of Israel. He has pronounced judgment upon Israel and upon Jerusalem until such time as they repent and turn to him and truly say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord which is taken from Psalm 118, which was part of which was our call to worship this morning. Just, uh, just give you a little insight that often in our call to worship, different elements, of, they're, they're more tightly woven together than it might first appear. It's not just, you know, like blindly, like looking in the Bible, I'm, you know, okay, we'll do that for our call to worship. So just a little hint there for those who might be interested. Um, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said that earlier in the week as Jesus came into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry, but in reality, it was his entry to his betrayal. They did not mean it. They who cried, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were some of the same voices that on Friday would cry, or rather Thursday and then Friday morning would cry out, crucify him. So we're learning now about the end times. We're learning about what will occur. The the disciples have asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And in these three verses this morning, we come to the heart of the matter, the most glorious consideration in, I will argue, in, in all of Scripture. Let's read together. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, it's a sobering thought to reflect that Every single person here, whether in Christ or apart from Christ, will one day be, will one day know of this event and experience it. Each one of us will see the Son of Man in his glory to our eternal joy or our eternal misery. So please teach us this morning and impress these things deeply upon the hearts of your people. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. We don't think enough about the return of Jesus and yet it dominates the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament. We as Christians, evangelical Christians in this present time, we are overwhelmingly consumed with here and now and issues of the day. The evangelical church evidently does not have that mark of New Testament Christianity, that anxious longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This morning, I want to, with you, meditate on Jesus' words in verses 29 through 31. And I want to do so in a way that reflects on what the, the scriptures have to say about this event. Because Jesus is overtly quoting from a few Old Testament passages. Nothing he is saying is remarkably new. It's, it's not off of the storyline of the scriptures. He is reiterating what the Old Testament prophets, what God said through the prophets, would come to pass. We need to know about the return of Jesus Christ. And I know that there are questions around his return. I understand that. Some of you, understandably, and if you have asked me, and perhaps we can examine this more at some point, is when will be the time when the church is raptured or caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds? Our church teaches that the rapture of the church will take place before the seven-year tribulation that Jesus has been teaching about. He calls it the Great Tribulation. We teach that the church will not be itself going through this period of time. There will be men and women who come to faith in Jesus Christ during the seven-year tribulation, but the emphasis in scriptures is particularly upon God dealing with the Jewish people, with Israel, his ancient people during that time, and bringing to pass his promises. But I say that by way of introduction in terms of this morning for a moment, let's just set aside the timing of the rapture. And by the way, everyone believes in a rapture. There are some of my friends who can't even say rapture. I mean, it's almost like you almost feel like it's a bad word. It simply means to be caught up. And if you're a Bible person, if you believe First Thessalonians 4, you believe that every believer will be at some point caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. The question of the timing of that rapture is not our consideration this morning. What we are focusing on is absolutely, undeniably clear. And we need to focus on the return, the glorious return. And by return, we mean not only coming to the clouds, but we mean when Jesus comes in glory in the clouds, as he says, the Son of Man appear in the sky, but when he comes from the sky once again and touches his feet down on this earth. You need to understand this. You need to know this. This is not something that is for theologians. This is not up for debate. What this teaching we have this morning, and this is my burden, is I want to pound lovingly, gently, this truth into your head and into your heart so that it shapes your every day, so that it shapes your Christianity, so that it shapes our church. This is our hope. The cross, which we're going to learn about and we're going to have reverent weeks, I don't know when, coming up when we will be looking at the sufferings of our Lord on the cross, But consider this, that all of Jesus' sufferings and his cross work and his resurrection, his ascension, was all for this day that he describes here in Matthew 24. It's what it's for. This generation, we need to understand this, this psychological, obsessed generation His point of his cross work was not merely to relieve from us the guilt of our sin and so that we could have a better psyche. It's not about us, friends. He loves us. But the purpose of his cross work is for the coming in the fruition of all of God's promises concerning the kingdom of God, the glory of God, and the glory of Christ, the Messiah, the King, reigning on earth. He died to purchase for himself a people who will be with him in his glorious kingdom. And Jesus here, note, 
he teaches very clearly, very plainly about his return. He says in verse 27, Matthew 24, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's talking about the second coming. His first coming was when he came in humility, the mystery of the eternal Son of God, become incarnate, conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, which we will celebrate and remember this Christmas season. He's talking about the second time when he comes, the first time he came to save sinners, the second time he comes, it will be to judge sinners and to save his people. I want to present to you this morning from Jesus' teaching in verses 29 through 31, five truths about the second coming of Jesus, five truths about the return of Jesus. And watch how I do this. God is witness. I'm going to point you right to the verse. And then what I'm going to largely do this morning is we are going to look at other primarily Old Testament passages that mirror what Jesus is saying. I want you to see that this is the testimony of the whole scriptures. First, number one, in verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 29, Jesus says that his coming, his return to earth will take place immediately after the great tribulation. Where do I get that from? Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. Uh, Nothing insightful about that first point. Just taking Jesus' words. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Which you have to say that uh, that's a challenge if you don't believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period. Um, you've lost one of the markers. This is just a general time of tribulation, and uh, there's no defined period. The tribulation that Jesus is talking about is a defined period. It is the 70th week that God prophesied through Daniel for his dealing with people of Israel, with Jerusalem. After that seven-year period, the second half of which is called the Great Tribulation, After those days, and immediately after those days, these things will take place. Now, as a a bit of an aside, we understand that Jesus, in the rest of Matthew 24 and chapter 25, is going to talk about the need for people in that time to be ready for his coming and, and to know that he might come at any moment. We might think, well, if, if Jesus says his coming is immediately after the tribulation, can't someone just kind of look at their watch and just, just look at it? Um, we, maybe you can think of um, the sufferings of those days of the tribulation as, as a time of, of, if you're going through it, it's a time exhausting. It is an overwhelming time. You are fatigued and exhausted more than any kind of exercise or any kind of chore you could ever do. You know what it's like when you're sick, really sick, and you feel like it's never going to end. And in the midst of your fatigue and your sickness, you're not really clear. You feel like you've been, uh, you know, hit in a boxing ring and knocked on the mat. The, The people living in that time in the time of the tribulation and I don't believe that we will I do believe that believers will the church will be removed before that tribulation but it will be so exhausting so traumatic so awful so terrible that there will be a great temptation to just be eased to sleep none of you are sleeping right now right (laughs) right nice it's a little warmer in here that that's a challenge we might want to turn down the temperature um keep you awake but it could be easy in those days to lose heart to think like the tribulation's never going to end to maybe give in to the temptation that Jesus is not going to come or maybe to fall for one of the false Christs Jesus warned about in verses 20 
3 and following. But Jesus tells us that you can expect his coming will take place after this great tribulation period and immediately. That's encouraging. Secondly, the backdrop of his coming will be the darkening of the lights in the sky. You can make that point however you want. What I'm reflecting on is what Jesus says in verse 29. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The darkening of the luminaries. The stars, the moon, the sun. It'll be the backdrop for his coming. It'll be the context. It'll be kind of like the canvas, if you will. To showcase the glory and the majesty of the risen, exalted, glorified Christ suddenly appearing in the sky. This will be traumatic. That'll be a traumatic period, the tribulation at large, but shortly, right before the coming of Christ, the sun will be darkened. Today, it's cloudy out. It's a little bit dismal. But we all understand that it's not going to last because the sun's there. It's shining. It's just a few hundred feet above us. You could see the sun. The moon. How often have we looked at the moon, especially maybe in the fall, as it comes up a full moon, comes up through the trees and and no matter how long we've been alive, we think, That's a, that moon looks huge tonight. It's beautiful. The sun cheers our hearts, warms our bodies, lifts our countenance. The moon brightens our eyes. And the stars are amazing. But shortly before the coming of Christ, as a sign of God's judgment, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, and stars, which are, you understand what stars, stars are, right? I'm, I'm no astronomer, but they're suns in other galaxies. These massive, blazing globes of fire will start falling, and the stars will start darkening. I want to spend a little time this morning on this point in particular, because this is spoken of greatly in the Old Testament. Turn with me if you'd like to. If you just want to listen, you can just listen. But my aim this morning is to show you as much as possible this is from Scripture. First of all, if you would like to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. And again, if you have trouble finding it, you can just listen. And what I want you to listen for is commonalities with what Jesus is saying. Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. Now what Jesus is describing in the tribulation and the great tribulation, culminating in his return, is called in the Old Testament the day of the Lord. It is the day of God's judgment upon this rebellious earth. It is a day of joy for Christ's people. It is a day of woe for those who are in rebellion against God. Listen to what Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of Yahweh, or the Lord, is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That's exactly what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24. Continues on, verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Wow. Jesus is coming to judge this earth. 
Every army, all the armies of the Antichrist who will be lifted up against God and against his people, these men who are so proud of their own strength, they will suddenly be absolutely, their hearts will melt. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23. There, Isaiah says, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Jesus will come, and the backdrop for his glorious coming will be the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars, a sign of woe for the rebellious, a sign of joy for those who are Christ. Joel chapter 2. If you want to turn to Joel chapter 2, or you can just listen. Joel Amos Obadiah. If you're looking for around for where this is, Joel is a significant, he, he has in common a lot with Isaiah. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. There, God says, I'm sorry, verse, yes, verse 10. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is very, indeed, great and very awesome. And yet, who can endure it? One of the things that will happen on the day of the Lord is that the Lord Jesus Christ will shout. And that shout of Christ will stir your heart if you're a believer like few sounds you will have ever heard in your eternity. You're not eternal, but in your immortal existence. To hear the Shout in the cry of your resurrected Lord as he goes into battle. Joel 3, verse 14. We know from other scriptures that God will be drawing the rebellious nations together around Jerusalem and in Israel and that area in order to gather them together to enter into judgment with them. And this judgment is not, this one is not a courtroom. We'll get to the sheep and the goats. But this judgment is the nations and the rebellious armies of the world and of Satan's antichrist figure and the beast all there. And then someone shows up whose name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will slay them with the sword of his mouth. Joel 3, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Note again, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Wow. One more passage that underscores the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars. Zephaniah, Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. That's the enemy of God. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. Christ will enter into judgment with the rebels. Back to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus just reiterates these Old Testament prophecies 
that on this day the sun, the moon, and the stars will go dark. The backdrop of Christ's coming will be the darkening of the lights in the sky. Thirdly, this morning, we learn that Jesus, when he comes again, will appear suddenly, physically, gloriously in the sky, in the clouds. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. What is the sign? The sign is the sun. Not S-U-N, S-O-N. He is the sign. That is the sign that redemptive history at that moment is forever changed. That is the end of any successful rebellion on this earth. That is the end of one age and the beginning of another. The end of a crooked and perverse generation and the beginning of the kingdom of our Lord on earth. And he will appear suddenly. You may know that his coming is after the tribulation, but the rest of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 indicates that that. No one knows at the hour or moment, verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. It will happen after the tribulation, but the exact day, the exact moment is known only to God the Father. It may be that it's at the darkest moment when all hope seems lost. And then suddenly, and I mentioned physically, and why do I say that? Because we believe in the resurrected Christ. That is not a peripheral doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't have the resurrection of Christ, you have no gospel. He is the resurrected Christ. He is the eternal Son of God pertaining to his deity And he is son of man pertaining to his humanity. He is the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, gloriously transformed, but in the flesh nonetheless. He is what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, one like a son of man. If you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, this is such a pivotal Old Testament passage Daniel 7 should be in your Old Testament a little bit like Isaiah 53 or maybe Psalm 23. You want to know, you want to love Daniel chapter 7 along with Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant. I mentioned that recently. But there's a few of these Old Testament passages you just, you want to know. You want to cherish And Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. God is through a vision showing Daniel the unfolding of history. There's been a succession of godless worldly kings and kingdoms. But then he keeps looking at the vision. And in verse 13, Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Just pause there. Why does Daniel say one like a son of man? Well, how do you describe something that's so amazing that you don't really have words to describe? He's not intentionally being vague. He's, He's seeing a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ in the future. It is so glorious. It is so grand. It is so beyond the the pale of his imagination that by the Holy Spirit, the best he can do is I kept looking and one like a son of man. This is a man, not an angel. Daniel knows by that point what an angel looks like. It's a man, but he's so glorious that he's like a son of man. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. 
Let's continue on. And this Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days. That is God Almighty, the Father. And the Son of Man was presented before him. And to him, to that Son of Man, was given a dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Note this. This Son of Man... His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which, in contrast to these other kingdoms, will not be destroyed. Jesus is overtly referring to Daniel chapter 7 when in Matthew 24 he refers to himself and his second coming as the Son of Man who will appear in the sky, in the clouds. His coming will be, he will appear suddenly, physically, and glorious. Glorious. Fourthly, this morning, the fourth truth that Jesus tells us about and he wants us to know he wants his people to be clear on he wants us to understand he does not want us to be vague he wants us to let this sink in not only will he appear suddenly physically gloriously in the sky and in the clouds but at his coming a remnant of Israel and Judah will mourn in repentance. You want to shorten that? A remnant of Israel and Judah will repent. Where do I get that from? You're reading verse 30 with me in in Matthew 24. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Some of you are saying, Pastor, I I don't see Israel or Judah there. You're you're reading that into the text. Well, I see that. So where is this coming from? What's the background? Well, first of all, I, I want you to consider that the word earth there means land. Same word. And in the Old Testament, God has a few things to say to his people Israel about the land. It's intrinsic to his covenant promise to Abraham, which has not been revoked. God's covenant with Abraham to give his descendants a certain land was a unilateral covenant. It was not dependent upon Abraham's obedience or theirs. The land matters. And we see a reiteration of this. Before we go back to the Old Testament, I want you to go to the end of your Bible Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And there the Apostle John, restating what Jesus says, but notice that John's understanding is a little bit more specific. we, We want to take our interpretation first from Christ's apostles. And in John 1, verse 7, John says, Behold... He is coming with the clouds. Again, that's referencing Daniel 7. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. It's an emphasis there on the nation of Israel as the ones who are responsible for piercing. Hold on to that. Some of you are saying, well, the Romans are the ones who actually put the nails through the hands. Hold on to that. Hold on. We're going to look at Zechariah. But John says to those who pierced him and all the tribes, all the tribes of the earth or land will mourn over him. So it is to be. So restatement of what Jesus says, a little more specificity. Let's turn now back to Zechariah. Zechariah is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. And I understand that this morning's sermon is more like a teaching. This is what preaching should be in some sense. I mean, my job is 
is just to show you and teach you what the Bible says. And I want to show you directly this morning as much as I can. Zechariah chapter 12. There are two passages in Zechariah I want to direct your attention to. I reference them actually quite frequently if you're around here. I love these passages. They are prominent in the Old Testament. Zechariah 12, beginning in verse 8. In that day, that future day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who's feeble among them in that day will be like David. In other words, like a strong warrior. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Uh, Just pause. The context here is that in the last days, there will be a remnant of Jews in Jerusalem who will be surrounded. That shouldn't surprise us. The world hates the Jews. We've gone through the Holocaust. We know this. If you took off the restraints and the fear factor from a significant part of the nations of the world, if you just let them go right now, they would hunt down every single Jew and annihilate them, wouldn't they? Don't be naive. Most of the countries represented in the United Nations, they don't like Israel. They're not, they're not in favor of protecting Jews. So it shouldn't surprise us that in the last days, there will be a satanic-inspired assault upon the remaining Jews. And it's at that time when God is going to send Christ, the Son, to rescue his people He will strengthen his people and they will be strengthened in defending the city. But then verse 9, in that day, God says, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And here's the key for our consideration on this fourth point. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping bitter weeping over a firstborn there's going to be a wholesale realization in a moment Jesus of Nazareth whom we pierced whom we cried out crucified is our messiah And notice the specificity of who this people group is. This is not the world in general. This is not Christians in general. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Verse 12, the land will mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan. So the those related to the household of David, the king of Israel, Nathan, those related to the priests, their wives by themselves, uh, the family of the house of Levi by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives for themselves. If we want to spiritualize that and just say vaguely that we as Christians make that up, then some of us are of the household of Levi, some of us are of the household of David, some of us are of the household of Shimeites. It makes absolute mush of what in the text is clear, known, straightforward, and understandable to anyone who would have heard it in Zechariah's day. There will be a remnant of Israel and Judah when Jesus returns, who mourn in repentance at his glorious appearing. Jesus says, Matthew 24, verse 30, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. He's referring back to this prophesied event in Zechariah. I want one more passage in Zechariah. I want you to see this. Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 9. If this doesn't make your skin tingle, I wonder if you have a pulse. Uh, This isn't Marvel or DC Comics. This is the real deal, and this is going to happen. Zechariah 14, verse 3. 
Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations who are gathered against Jerusalem as when he fights on a day of battle. Who's that? Jesus. No one as gentle and kind as Jesus. But you do not want to mess with his people. In Isaiah, there's a scene in which there's this figure that approaches Jerusalem with robes absolutely covered with blood. And it's asked of that figure, who are you and where do you come from? It's the Messiah. And his robes are completely drenched with blood because he has been trampling under his feet his enemies and the enemies of his people. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But there's a time coming when the time for patience is over. God says, in that day, the Lord will go forth, Zechariah 14, 3, and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. You know, that's where we, we, you get into t- interpretation, and some people just say, well, you know, this is talking about a cataclysmic event. I just think that his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. I have no reason why doesn't it mean what it says. In Matthew 24, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. We know what it is. He's going to come down. His feet are going to touch there. His feet with the scars from the nails are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. Half of the mountain will move towards the north, half towards the south. And the beleaguered remnant that's there, he says, verse 5, you will flee by the valley of my mountains. Precious image of Jesus in his glory with the army of heaven with him, standing on the Mount of Olives, looking at his enemies surrounding Jerusalem. His people are fleeing the city and they are going in safety. And this is going to happen. I'm not making this up. This is text. They are going to flee through that valley he has provided for their safety and his eyes are on his enemy, his eyes of fire. It's awesome. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be a unique day. You will flee by the valley, verse 5. Then the Lord my God, end of verse 5, will come, and all the holy ones with him. Those are the angels. I plan to be there. I think all those who are Christ's people will be with Jesus at this moment, witnessing his glorious triumph. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Yet another reference to this backdrop of his coming. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. That's the aftermath when the Lord gives peace to Jerusalem. We can't end that reading without going to verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, his name the only one. That may be my favorite verse in the Old Testament. I may have mentioned that before, but I think it is. It's going to happen. So we have learned this morning, we have one more truth. We've learned that his coming will take place immediately after the tribulation. The backdrop of his coming will be the darkening of the luminaries in the sky. He will appear suddenly, physically, gloriously. Fourthly, at his coming, a remnant of Israel and Judah, the families of Israel, each one that is left, will mourn in true repentance and look upon whom they have pierced, the one whom they have pierced. And fifthly and finally, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says that his angels 
will gather his elect from every corner of the earth. Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Christ's angels will gather every believer in every place to Christ. That's our fifth and final point this morning. Christ's angels will gather every believer in every place to Christ. It'll be an incredible day. A day of terror for those apart from Christ. His angels are not cute, little, harmless creatures. They are called in the Bible the sons of the mighty. They are called the mighty ones. They are awesome, powerful, spiritual beings that God created. Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 27 said, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. You can imagine the scene in that day of of the Antichrist and of the armies of the rebellious men of earth, men and women who hate God, don't want anything to do with Christ, in rebellion, who hate Christ's people. And then Jesus shows up, and not only Christ, but myriads and myriads of angels. We're told of a scene in the book of Acts where Peter was imprisoned and, and he was even chained to some Roman guards, and they were there to guard him and protect him. And and we know the angels came, and the guards kept them asleep, and they didn't even see the angels, and they had no idea later how it was that Peter escaped. But imagine the experience if you're one of Christ's enemies, and you're in the army, and maybe you think, oh yeah, I got this super-duper weapon, or whatever the case may be, we're with this force, and suddenly you are eye-to-eye with an angel of God, and he's not looking at you to help you. It's a bad moment. This is what's going to happen for those who are against Christ, but for those who are Christ's people, Jew and Gentile in that day, wherever his people are scattered over the whole globe, perhaps imprisoned, perhaps in misery, perhaps in hiding, wherever they are, this is so precious. This is so beautiful that Christ in his coming will send forth these mighty angels and they will immediately go and they will carry Christ's people to his presence. They will serve Christ's people and they will bring him to his side, never to be separated ever again unto eternity. Safe forevermore. This is glorious. This is, this is cause for rejoicing. This is cause for worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't think about this enough. It's in our songs. It's, it, there's references there all the time. And I think we just sing over it. Whenever we sing about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we got our heads on straight, our skin is beginning to tingle a little bit because it's coming. It's coming. This is not speculation. This is not movie. This is not fiction. This is black and white truth in the scriptures consistently declared throughout the whole scope and witness of scripture and stated clearly and plainly here This is what we ought to count on as believers. Mark it on your calendar. It's going to happen. The resurrected, glorified, ascended, reigning Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth in glory to protect and to love and to bestow blessing on those who are his and to crush and to judge and to cast into eternal fire those who are not his. It is a day of reckoning that will be like no other, never to be repeated. And for his people, his cause of rejoicing. If you're here this morning and you're apart from Christ, you should be terrified. 
Because you are going to meet him, not in his kindness, not in his grace, but in the fury of his glory. Because you spurned him, you spurned his father, you spurned his glory, you cast his ways under his feet. And so he will finally, the day of patience and the day of long-suffering will be over. It will be the day of reckoning. Be reconciled to him. Be made right to him. He's good. He's glorious. He's worthy of your affection, of your allegiance, of your love. He is your king. And he is so good. There's more than enough to capture your attention and your love and your joy for now and unto eternity. He's given himself for you. He came the first time in humility. He came to live among us, like us, for us. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. He who could cause the ones who were calling out, crucify him and and pierced him to be annihilated with a thought, willingly submitted himself. He sacrificed himself for your sins and mine so that we could be made right with him, washed, forgiven, cleansed, and that we could be his party, his people, (laughs) and participate in the party. (laughs) Oh, it's a day of woe, the day of the Lord, but from the perspective of those who are against Christ, if you are in Christ, this is, this is, this is the greatest day. Oh, yes, the cross. Please don't hear me diminishing the cross. This, we don't have this day with joy apart from the cross. We don't participate in this day with joy and with peace apart from the cross. We must have Christ crucified for our sins. But it's all for this day when he returns and the prophecy takes place. The king, the Lord, will be king over all the earth. Be there. In order to be there, be made right with Jesus. Trust in him today. Let's pray. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are so weary of this world. We're so thankful for the common graces you give us food, clothing, friendship, family. And these are gifts from you. But none of these things compare to the glories of the kingdom to come. And that will not take place until you, Jesus, are here. So, Father in heaven, as you are the one alone who knows that day and that hour, we know you do all things well. But with the raging of Satan, with the descending of this world into ever-increasing immorality and blasphemy, is it not time for these things to unfold? We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, send him for your church. Cause these things to start to unfold so that we may see his glorious appearing. And in the meantime, we pray, save sinners, even today. If there's any man or woman, boy or girl here, who has not been made right with you, O God, through faith in your Son, I pray that today would be a day of salvation. We pray this earnestly in our great King's name. Amen.